transformed and inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode. In this episode, we begin walking through the portion of God's big story in the Bible that we call the New Testament. The Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah, which is what the New Testament is about. The Old Testament points us to Jesus through all kinds of pictures and shadows, but in the New Testament, the reality comes. Shadows give way to substance, and things that resemble Jesus give way to the reality of Jesus, who is God in human flesh. So as we step into the New Testament, this is a big deal. The coming of Christ brought big changes And the course of history was altered by the arrival of the one promised throughout the Old Testament. And yet, what we find is that many people missed him. He wasn't what they expected, so many people failed to believe he was who he said he was. Rather than worshiping him as he deserved, they killed him. And yet, we also find that this was part of God's glorious, eternal plan that he had prepared before the foundation of the world, all so that we could be saved from our sins. So we've covered the word cracker in our Cracker Jack acronym, which covers the whole Old Testament story. And now we come to the New Testament as we walk through the word Jack. J is for Jesus, and although the whole Bible is ultimately about him, here we're thinking primarily about the portrait of Jesus that we get in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these Gospel accounts gives us a unique glimpse into the person and work of Christ. And each one offers something special as we seek a full-orbed view of Christ Jesus, our Savior. In this episode, I'm going to be condensing Dane Ortland's new book called Surprised by Jesus. And the subtitle is Subversive Grace in the Four Gospels. In this book, he does a wonderful job highlighting the unique emphasis of each gospel and how they come together to build a multi-dimensional picture of Jesus. And Dane Ortland begins this book with these words. He says, Like a bad back that needs to return repeatedly to the chiropractor for straightening out, our understanding of Jesus needs to be straightened out over and over again as our poor spiritual posture throws our perception of him out of line, domesticating him and conforming him to our image rather than transforming us into his image. Here, Dane Orland gets at why it is so important for us to keep coming back to the Scriptures time and time again. Because of how sin has bent and deformed our hearts, we need the realigning influence of God's Spirit working through God's Word to straighten us out and to put our hearts where they need to be. In the Gospel of Matthew, Ortland shows how counterintuitive Jesus' definition of morality is. Many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the pastors and seminary professors, they failed to understand that they needed the grace of Jesus just as badly as anyone else did. Dane Ortland puts it this way, The deepest distinction among human beings is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad and those who do not. This is what many of Israel's leaders were blinded to. 
In comparison with everyone else, they thought they were pretty good, and that being better than others would surely make them acceptable to God. Jesus, though, turns this type of thinking on its head by calling to repentance even the most religious, the most put-together people in Jewish society. He wanted them to understand that even the best we can do will never measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. Like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:48, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." British preacher Martin Lloyd Jones once said, "It is not immorality, but morality that is the greatest enemy of Christianity." What he meant was that trying to be good enough to measure up in God's presence is wrong-headed. If we are banking on our own goodness or moral performance to make us right with God, then we have made a massive mistake in our understanding of how we get back into good standing with God. The consistent testimony of the Bible is that we can never hope to measure up when it comes to our relationship with God. The only way to qualify for God's presence is to admit that we can do nothing to qualify ourselves. That's the unexpected, upside-down nature of the gospel. We enter God's kingdom not because of our achievement or moral goodness, but simply by acknowledging our own moral badness. By admitting that we cannot measure up, we open ourselves up to the provision of righteousness in Christ that allows us to measure up. The key, though, is to remember that we don't pass God's perfect scrutiny in our own power. Instead, we pass with flying colors entirely because of the perfect obedience of Christ that it's been given to us as if it were our own. In the Gospel of Matthew, with Jesus' fiery criticism of the Pharisees, it reminds us of the great danger of the Pharisee within all of us. We all have this internal defense attorney that rises to defend us from accusations. When it comes to our standing before God, our inner Pharisee tries to justify us by telling us we are a good person. By God's grace, the Gospel of Matthew, though, it uncovers the truth about the Pharisee within our hearts. It shows us that we will never qualify for God's presence ourselves. Instead, as Colossians 1 says, we give thanks to the Father because He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. For those of us who have admitted that we can do nothing to qualify for God's presence, we have found that in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In the Gospel of Mark, it also surprises us, but in different ways from the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are surprised by Jesus' definition of morality. But in the Gospel of Mark, we're surprised by Jesus' mission. We, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, expect God to enter history with a big bang, with a grand display of His magnificence. Instead, Jesus creeps into the story in a way that was hardly noticeable. And certainly, there's the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, but Christ is born into the humblest of circumstances. He doesn't seem to be anything special to look at. Like Isaiah 53 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. This King, who was Himself the creator of the entire universe, looked like nothing more than a mere creature. 
And the Gospel of Mark is crafted carefully to help us experience the surprise of the King of the universe who comes not to rise up and reign over Israel as so many expected, but instead to die as a criminal. Instead of being exalted in honor as the long-awaited King of Israel, he is lifted up on a cross as the ridiculed King of the Jews. And the great irony in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus' disciples get his identity right, but they misunderstand his mission. In the middle of the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, Jesus asks the disciples who people are saying that he is. And they tell him what they've heard, and then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Spot on, right? But here's what is so interesting. Immediately after getting Jesus' identity right, Jesus begins sharing about his mission, which involves suffering many things and being rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and being killed, and after three days rising again. But when Peter heard this, it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see, the expectation was that the Messiah would come to set them free from their enemies. Their enemies in their minds were the Romans. But instead of dealing with this external threat, Jesus actually came to set them free from their greatest enemy, which was themselves. The enemy within their own sinfulness was a much more formidable foe than their Roman oppressors. And Jesus came to defeat the greatest enemy that stood against his beloved people. He left his throne in heaven to provide salvation from our sins. This was the deeper problem, the biggest obstacle in the way of God and his people. So the Gospel of Mark surprises us by showing us where the biggest threat lies, which is inside of us. That is the largest barrier between us and God, and Jesus came to take care of it. The Gospel of Luke, just like the other Gospels, it also has a surprise of its own. And the surprise in Luke is focused more on the horizontal than it is the vertical. Its focus is on the surprising social implications of the gospel. In Luke, we learn not so much about Jesus' identity or mission, but about the community he's putting together by his grace. The surprise that we find is that insiders are cast out while outsiders are welcomed in. You see, the people of Israel should have recognized their Messiah. But their sinful self-righteousness blinded many of them from doing so. In a nutshell, many of those who should have recognized him didn't, and many of those who you wouldn't have thought would recognize him did. The decisive factor, though, is how people responded to Jesus. If someone responded to him with repentance and faith, turning away from their sins and trusting in him alone for salvation, they were in. They belonged, no matter how bad they were or how many horrible things they had done. If someone responded with anything less than wholehearted trust in Christ's promise of rescue, they were out. They were excluded. Not because Jesus is a mean guy, but because they were trusting in themselves. And that is the one thing you must not do. In his book, Dane Ortland talks about the universal human longing to belong. We all crave to be welcomed in. And we all know the sting and the hurt of being excluded. The gospel, by addressing the ultimate vertical problem between us and God, begins healing the horizontal problems we experience in relationship with one another. 
Dane Ortland says it this way, Apart from the gospel, we crave to be in, yet we never can be. In the gospel, this craving is calmed as we are once and for all on the inside. Finally, the itch for meaningful inclusion has been satisfied. You see, our relationship with Christ involves a new relationship with his bride, the church. And again, the vertical influences the horizontal. When we trust in Christ, we also become a part of his people, a community that includes those from all the various strata of society and from all cultures around the world. With the help of God's Spirit, we grow together, not allowing our differences to separate us, but instead to purify us as we comfort and challenge one another in the context of Christian community. Lastly, the Gospel of John focuses on Jesus' identity. In the Gospel of John, we are meant to be astounded and surprised that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would step down into this messy, broken world to become a little creature. What an incredible mystery that the author of history would write himself into the story. This reminds us of the massive importance of the historical reliability of the scriptures. Dane Ortland says it like this, If we subtract historicity, then the Christian faith topples. And 1 Corinthians 15 says this very thing, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So the Gospel of John tells us that the Word became flesh and has dwelt among us. The historicity of this and Jesus' identity as God in human flesh make up the crux of John's Gospel. Again, Dane Ortland summarizes it like this. He says, this is the surprise of John. The creator became a creature so that we creatures can be restored to our creator. And that's what Jesus came to do. And no one besides the son of God could have accomplished this. His identity was crucial to his mission. And like we said at the beginning of this episode, it is by coming back to the scriptures over and over again that we grow as we behold the beauty of Jesus in his word. It is through this repeated process of getting one glimpse after another of Christ that we see our hearts gradually changing. Our affections intensify and our love for Jesus deepens. It is through this habit of coming back for more that we step into the fullness of what God has for us in Christ. So let's make this our daily work. Let's seek Jesus in his word, asking the Lord to make us more and more like the one that we find in its pages. The Lord is faithful, and He will bring to completion the good work He has begun in His children. Well, that is it for this episode of Informed and Inflamed. Thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to connecting with you again next time.